And welcome to the Dice Are Screaming podcast. Hey, Mike, what kind of podcast are we having today? Oh, let me tell you, bro. We're the Medusa's Garden of Gaming Podcasts. Oh, no. <laughs> Where good things come to have bad things happen to them. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Everything here is stoned. No, no, just kidding. Just kidding. We actually do this clean and sober. Yeah, true. Which, I don't know if that's a bragging I, right or a failure on our part. I, yeah. I'm kind of torn either way. I, I don't know whether that's an endorsement or a shame, but <laughs> hey, I'm Randy. I am Mike. And we are the two-headed Etten of Literary Gaming Podcast. Yes, that's us, the Gestalt, that just keeps on giving. How you folks doing? Yeah, it's good to be back. Uh, we took a hiatus last week. Uh, things just, you know, the weather and everything else just have been making it difficult for us to get together and uh, get this podcast done. But we appreciate everybody sticking it out. And we're going to keep the content coming at you. And as much promised, we are here to talk about the Rutger Hauer Power Hour. Yeah, sorry for the delay. Uh, we had considerable snow in the center of last week. It was a most impressive display by Mother Nature. Uh, uh, within a couple of days, things had calmed back down, but wow, uh, like literally the the giant snow piles left by the plows were kind of amazing and impressive to look at. Uh, now, uh, hmm. travel has become safe. Not so easy. much fun to get out of your driveway or off your no. steps, but hey, that's the uh, benefit, yeah, drawbacks I, of living in Michigan. I, uh, I got stuck a couple of times benefits. myself, actually. Uh, and, and not even in that deep of snow, but that's the hazards of driving a car instead of my old truck. I think my wife had a post-traumatic stress disorder symptom of being stuck out in the roads like that. She was just apoplectic. So, yeah, uh, we're, we're, we're here and we're coming at you live. So as live as recording can be. And so we're going to talk about Rutger Hauer. And you may think for yourself, wow, how can you drone on about an hour and so on Rutger Hauer, and yeah, we're going to dedicate this whole hour to him because, well, he is no longer with us. And uh, yeah, it, I know that he passed a couple of years ago, and we did not cover it at that time. But his birthday came just a very short time ago, and we were kind of meditating momentarily on, you know, the the loss of one of the actors that I think honestly defined like both. Uh, fantasy and science fiction and horror and uh, drama, historical, you know, the guy was in everything. He had a thumbprint that was way in excess of what one individual actor would normally have. Uh, so, you know what? It's worth it. It's totally worth it. We can actually get a, a brief, you know, glimpse of some of our favorite films. Uh, and a little, I think, uh, a little conversation on the lasting impact and reach of some of those, you know, cinematic moments. Yeah, and this is where we take some time out to just kind of indulge our geekdom, because Rutger Hauer is one of those actors that I'm going to compare him to Jack Parlance. Oh, uh, yeah, Jack Palance. Palance, Palance. Uh, I already said Balance, yeah, I'm going to go to Jack Palance if I can remember his name, right? Yeah, uh, he was literally everywhere in, a, in so many things that he became ubiquitous. But he was a guy who almost never turned down a role. And when he came to that role, he gave it his all, no matter how crappy it was. 
oh yeah, look, it's not like the guy didn't, uh, <laughs> I don't want to say crappy per se. You like they're, you know, he, he brought something to every role that he was in, even if it was a maybe lower key production, you know, or they didn't have a whole lot of money. Uh, you know, not, not a lot of cash was on the table for this, but hey, you know what? If you watched that show and he was in it, I guarantee you that guy actually showed up and tried. Yeah, and he passed away, uh, Rucker Howard passed away here in... Uh, well, it was uh, 2019, 19, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, 2019, and uh, his birthday was uh, January 23rd. Yeah, and... So he would have been, uh, what, um, 77? No, he'd been 76. Oh, man. 76, 77, it's one of those things, yeah. So, well, I know he was mostly in, in this era working in Dutch television and uh, doing a lot of like master class teaching uh, for acting in, you know, like back in uh, Holland. Uh, well, that and I, I guess, you know, just really enjoying uh, that late life, low degree of obligations. But this is a guy who he never really stopped working. Okay. His filmography was just crazy long. Yeah, and he was, you know, a lot of people remember him for the breakout role in uh, Turkish Delight. I mean, those few people who saw the film. I mean, if anybody says, oh, yeah, I was a Rucker Howard fan back then. No, okay, all right, fine. I mean, that's going to happen. But let's be honest here. Uh, it, there was one role that made him a household name. So let's celebrate a little bit of his life and talk about his legacy that he leaves for gaming and science fiction and fantasy fans everywhere. And... Yeah, this is going to touch on another future episode we're talking about. And when we're on future episodes, why don't we pause here and see what lies in store for the Dice oh, podcast and its listeners. Speak of the future and the Gelascopper will gaze into it. Uh, but remember, Gelascopy is the divination by laughter. Oh. I need you to laugh for me. <laughs> Aha. The Gelascopper has divined that our next week's topic will be Battletech. Oh. Yeah, how overdue is that? Because I, I honestly, I, I had mo one of those momentary overreactions where I, I sat there and went, how, how have we not done this? Ah! I, you know, aside from all the literature it spawned, I mean, it's a game that has, you know, incarnated itself over and over again throughout almost 40 years now. So, I don't know what, like at least 35. Uh, it just has a huge impact on the gaming world and in science fiction uh, and what is considered popular science fiction reading today. Yeah, almost 150 Total neglect novels. on our parts. Yeah. I mean, yeah, at one point you could dismiss Battletech as just some tawdry disposable paperback fiction put on the shelves to garner a few bucks but you know what science it's... fiction has its pulp elements as well and it sure. always has so I, i'm not going to gainsay battletech when you're like I, come on flash gordon and uh buck rogers buck rogers are both material out of the pulp era as treasured as they are battletech is just another generation's pulp literature and it has had a profound and lasting impact on both science fiction literature and on science fiction. And gaming. it's having a resurgent both in its board game form, role playing, and 
in this electronic media. It's been incarnated in various forms in Mech Warrior online. Yeah, get your kid into Mech Warrior miniatures. He'll never have money and for yeah, drugs. The, well, no, that's the thing is it's actually cheap. You know, you want that was uh, for Warhammer. It's, it's better now. Okay, it's better now. There, oh, there was, were times where. Well, Battletech's always been just a few mechs and just beating the snails out of each other. But yeah, we'll be covering that, barring any unforeseen circumstances, next week. So stick around if you're interested in Battletech. Hopefully you'll tune in for that one. And if not, spread the word. So meanwhile, we're going to talk about Rutger Howard. And uh, so I first knew about him peripherally in Nighthawks, which, I mean... Yeah, for that, a, he had already been working for like most of a decade at that point, like a whole decade. This guy had been around since the end of the '60s, all the way through the '70s, unknown to American audiences for the most part. Right. Then comes Nighthawks. Yeah, Nighthawks, and you know, okay, say what you want about it. Um, it's a good film. I, I want from to a say certain... what I want about it, but I'm I'm going to show restraint because uh, you know, we're here for the the love and appreciation of the great actor Rutger Hauer. So I'm not going. But that impression that he made, I'm going to back in off. that movie, and this is really sets the tone. Is even though the movie is somewhat cringy to watch, it's a great uh, guys' night movie. Or uh, um, you know, you want to rent uh, replay the days of rentals? Yeah, pull it up on your. Uh, I believe it's on uh, Hulu. Oh. Well, I could be mistaken. I, I might have, uh, I didn't do my uh, due diligence on this one. But yeah, you can find it uh, wherever you find it on whatever format. And uh, yeah, I definitely use a legitimate one. We're not saying use anything untowards because we would never do that here. And I mean that. So yeah, Nighthawks, if you watch it, it's one of those movies where you can see where, yeah, this is definitely a B movie, but it did make an impression because he brought a larger life presence to that. And it lasted, but the one breakout. Yeah, he film. was impressive in the movie. Like as as an actor, he had an intensity that I think the no wolf guy. any environment that you put him in, his intensity drew people's attention, and that's what got him a big break in an upcoming movie. That right on the heels of his Nighthawks, uh, you know, debut. Um, yeah, as like his Hollywood debut, where yes. American audiences got their first glimpse of Rutger Hauer. Boom, he got a variety of offered roles, and one of them, Roy Batty in Blade yeah. Runner. Now, I understand that some people now are looking back at Blade Runner with a different view, and maybe a more nuanced view as well. I, I did get to see uh, a little uh, interview from Harrison Ford saying he really slept walk through the movie and. You know, I like old Harry and everything like that, but I'm getting really tired of Harry just, you know, backsassing all his roles. I'm like, oh, shucks. It's not a whole, oh, shucks. It's like, oh, I'm just really embarrassed by that. Okay, great. But you know what? You have nothing to be ashamed about. And Rutger Hauer really dominated the screen. Now, he ended up almost stealing the show because... <laughs> yeah, uh, let's be honest. Again, that intensity issue that we were talking about, uh, Harrison Ford might be beating himself up and saying, like, I don't feel like I did that much. Uh, it was well filmed, and there is nothing that Harrison Ford did that upset that. Okay, they, oh, yeah, they had yeah. a specific goal they were aiming for, and Mr. Ford did nothing to diminish that atmosphere or that character. So whether he thinks he did something standout or not, uh, okay, that's up to him. Yeah, But I'm saying that it worked out fine. But here's the difference. When I say intensity, 
Roy Batty in Blade Runner. Everybody remembers that, okay? Can you... I understand where Mr. Ford might feel like he didn't make that big of a contribution or wasn't that impressive. Well, but he was more poo-pooing the role in the movie. What do people quote like from that movie? Oh, uh, there's like four or five good lines, but uh, the one that sticks out for me personally is, I want more life, father. Yeah. I... <laughs> uh, but Roy Batty's speech, like, I've seen a tech ship song on fire. Right. I... See it. All these things will be lost like tears in rain. And more juxtaposing Ah! to uh, Harrison Ford's character, uh, Deckard, or Deckard, the milquetoast detective. He was flat and almost unemotional, where Roy Batty was emotional and passionate for a being that's not supposed to have that high of a range of emotional responses. He was very emotional, but focused, intense. And I don't think, after looking at it, if you cast another actor, and there were several considered, that you would have had a better result. I think Rutger Hauer took that role and went to a place that he imagined it, and it came out as something impressive. And truly stand outstanding in all the films that have been done. I think Blade Runner is one of those classic films that happened in a moment, and I don't think it'll happen again. Yeah. Not I, to say that you can't have a better film than Blade Runner. But oh, I, no, 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 that's not the point, but uh, the yeah, it's our occasional comments on the Princess Bride. Some things don't need to be remade. You like That one thing has been done. Right. It has been done as well as it could be done. It does not need to be redone. Leave it alone. Uh, go do something else. Hey. Yeah, know. and that, that movie defined cyberpunk as a genre, as its visual guide. It also, in gaming, is our my go-to to understand how commercialism and everything is just a almost oppressive force. You can't get away from it. Mixed with that wet streets noir. <laughs> yeah, okay. This was one of science fiction's great moments. Uh, of having the classic Chinatown noir detective vibe injected into a purely science fiction atmosphere, uh, it, it, which made it incredibly memorable because it was done well. And Roy Batty, uh, Mr. Howard's presence there, uh, you know, initially, I mean, they're cast as villains. Uh, you know, this is the oppositional relationship. This is the the antagonist, the person who is doing something that is not supposed to be done, and then Harrison Ford is the good guy who is supposed to stop them from doing that. Keeping the status quo in the order. And as it unfolds, you realize that the antagonists are asking to not be, uh, you know, temporary assets, you know, just employed life forms with a a purpose dictated to them by circumstances. They want agency. They want life. Um, You cannot look upon that and say, those are the bad guys. Uh, And then you look at the person who is ostensibly the representative of order and, you know, the the status quo. This is the person who is here to kill anybody who wants more life. (laughs) Uh, You know, to not, not that their methods were particularly admirable, since uh, the replicants in, in Blade Runner, you know, happily killed to, you know, 
make their escape and certainly well, they left... do anything that was necessary to survive. Yeah, they what... leave a body trail behind them as they go, but you know, everything becomes that murky gray like the classic bogey films where you know, there's no heroes in this. Everybody's got an angle. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the ones that I think almost everybody remembers and it's probably hard to top that role he had, but we're going to plot on to this. I mean, it's that is his magnum opus, and I think it is his best work. But it didn't stop him from keeping on. And I we're going to bring out some ones that I think that were also very good. And yeah, you know where we're going next. <laughs> the Hitcher. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. We're, where we're, once again, he's playing a kind of psychopathic villain. No, I, I wouldn't describe uh, it. it it's a Middle Ages mercenary, like late oh, Middle no, Ages, no. pre-Renaissance. We were talking about the Hitcher. Oh, shit. Sorry. <laughs> My brain was in another place. Uh, uh, I was thinking of Flesh and Blood with uh, the Paul Verhoeven movie. Yeah, I was just uh, going to go to the other one that had a, a big impression for a lot of people. Okay, yeah, a lot of people did not see Flesh and Blood, but Hitcher, oh my gosh. Yeah, that was much larger. See Thomas Howell as the poor kid who picks up a hitchhiker when he should have just minded his own business. <laughs> and yeah. what a hitchhiker he picked up. Oh, yeah. The, the, the <laughs> restaurant scene still haunts me to the days. Oh, yeah. Finger in the French fries. Yep. And then the look when he looks into the back, and there he is looking back at him with a smile. Now, a wry smile. Uh, to give like a just a super fast forward like Blade Runner is so big that we hardly have to explain it uh, in the Hitcher uh, C. Thomas Howell is a kid who gets a job transporting a car to another state and all he's supposed to do is drive from point A to point B and deliver the vehicle you know this this is often the way that uh, you know like new or used purchases make their way through multiple states uh, you get somebody basically the ability to drive themselves from point A to point B and get where they're ultimately going and then show up and have a little payday for what they've done. Uh, that's all it was supposed to be. He picks up a hitchhiker and he gets Rutger Hauer, the psychopath, who then... John Ryder. ...is terrorizing this kid. You know... Before, can't get rid of him. Yeah. You can't just get away from him. Well, the kid manages to get rid of him. I mean, he ditches the guy well, at an opportune moment, like knocks him out of a door and, you know, <laughs> uh, manages to get away from him. But this guy, like, congratulations. You've actually drawn his attention. Yep. Like, okay, he you could have just been like a random body he left behind. There would have been no great artistry behind this serial killer's actions. Uh, it, you could have just been dead guy whose car he stole number 507. No. You have his full and complete attention. It's not enough just to find you and kill you now. Now it's a, about a game of revenge and psychological torture. Sure, and cat and mouse, you never know when he's going to show up next. You just can't seem to ditch this guy. He just always finds a way to catch back up to him. No matter how much distance he's putting between him <laughs> and John Ryder, he comes back and finds a way at the least opportune moments to terrorize you. And that it's all perfectly planned. And Rutger Howard does this with a sense of sadistic whimsy that I think oh, 
it was so impressive that his fear was being typecast as that forever after because yeah. he was immensely popular. He terrorized audiences in that movie. They were just like, oh, yeah. It became a quick cult. Quickly became a cult classic to, in the VHS era to watch over and over again. Oh, you just got to see this movie, and that's when I saw it. And yeah, I, that's the impression it made on me. I, I like, still have a copy. I'm like, holy cow, this guy. Whoa, <laughs> and it has a lot to do with the director. Oh, look, a total giveaway. Yeah, obviously a much better directed than average horror movie. It was psychological and suspense rather than like the low rent spatter gore. Yeah. Uh, many of the more gruesome scenes in it uh, relied on the viewer filling in the blanks mentally okay there was not a lavish like oh this is saw you know we're <laughs> we're, we're gonna get like guts deep in this no it was equally terrifying because of what wasn't shown the little hints the the subtlety so right. it was a wonderfully well-directed movie and yeah that, that's why we wanted to bring it up the next one and i kind of juked mike up a little bit because yeah let's go uh take a step back and before The Hitcher, there was another movie, a little less known, but uh, another director that he would be very uh, popular with. Yeah, I caught the uh, replay of that one on television late night uh, during the golden age of cable. Uh, <laughs> and Flesh and Blood has yeah, Paul a... Paul Ver uh, Verhoeven. Verhoeven, excuse me. Yeah, Paul Verhoeven is, like, he's... Well, I think people would probably remember his name most... Uh, either from Starship Troopers or from Showgirls. Or RoboCop. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. I, in fact, I just did a rewatch on RoboCop uh, for giggles and poops. You know? Right. But he uh, got cast with uh, Flesh and Blood and takes place in Italy. And this, uh, there's two warring groups of mercenaries and they're long-standing quarrel. Yeah. They... It was going to be originally titled God's Own Butchers, which... <laughs> yeah, on board with that. Yeah, this was a box office flop, okay? People did not get yeah. their money back on making this. Uh, it had a huge budget and was incredibly lavish in its historical representation of locations, of dress, of weaponry. Uh, it Well, the plague. It had a ragtag band of mercenaries that you know down on their luck uh you know they've they've been uh double crossed and you know as so often was the case in the you know incredibly political world of uh mercenary in 100 years soldiers war. yeah you uh, if you backed the wrong horse at any moment people could withdraw their support, terminate your employment, or, or worse, your employer is dead and lost, and there's no getting money out of them now. Uh, and you're just on your own, working your way through the countryside. And they're very dangerous people. Uh, but, my goodness, I consider this an underrated classic. Yeah. A lot of people just were not ready for that in the theaters. It was not a thing that they were interested in. It didn't have the dramatic appeal of something like Conan. Uh, but Rutger Hauer was fantastic as this opportunistic and thoughtful uh, leader of this little band of ragtag leftovers from a mercenary army. Uh, he had that swaggering confidence uh, 
the simmering intensity that for which he is so famous, deservedly. And he has because nobody that, does a simmering intensity stare like Roger Howard. His the shrewdness of the character, the the way he sized up, you know, okay, how feasible is this? What's the risk versus reward? Uh, you know, he brought the character to life, and I felt like people just didn't get it. So, a little disappointed there. Uh, we would talk about Lady Hawk, but that's actually on deck for if. Yeah, we're going to do another round of fantasy uh, film reviews, and we're going to cover that in depth. But we are going to touch on it here, I think. Momentarily, yeah. This we're going to be... mention uh, two good things about this one. This was another breakout role for him playing the good guy. Although, yeah. initially, he comes across as the bad guy because he wears black. Yeah, well, he's scary, and he's on a huge Frisian war horse. And... With a double freaking crossbow. Yeah. yeah, I know. Rapid reload. I'm still not over that. It was just too cool to be on screen. Ah! Okay, we all, we, those of us who were gamer nerds in like 1985 were just, oh, double crossbow. Yeah, if Flesh and Blood Guts was basically like it says, it's down in the mud, guts, gore, and oh, the, the, the plague scene. Oh, oh I'm not going to spoil Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Flesh and Blood was a much dirtier, grittier. Uh, historical realism which this was more of a fantasy and now lady hawk on the other hand yeah it was this beautiful cleanly scrubbed fantasy you know none of that unnecessary grit oh unnecessary. it has a little bit of grit but hey you know what's there for the story and it's great man <laughs> matthew broderick has the mouse i mean that was no he's adorable <laughs> so good a role and then uh, rutger hauer is perfect as being yeah. the doomed warrior captain etienne navarre the, the victim, one of the two victims of the curse that dominates the story thread. Of yeah, Leon. and that helped break him out too because people like really liked him in that role. Yeah, he was stern. Uh, he was unyielding. Uh, his backstory was tragic, uh, and yet he stoically endured, and he, without surcease, moved towards a single goal. Uh, yeah, but he had empathy, uh, probably because of his curse. Yeah. And... He was a changed person. And you definitely seen this as a redemption arc, although he was going to... It got dark quick. I'm not going to spoil it if you haven't seen it, and if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, it, got, it gets... like His solution to this is very dark, and I'm glad that he was talked out of it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but, you know, you get the happy endings for all. Yeah. Uh, we will go over Lady Hawk in much greater depth at... Uh, but let's say this was another favorite, and it came out in the same year as Flesh and Blood, and it was much more commercially successful. And oh, yeah. Helped elevate him to another one. But the post-production on the two meant that like, they came out relatively close in time period. But, you know, it, he was a busy guy. This guy could just get in there and work. So big right. kudos to uh, our man, Rutger Hauer. He, he really, you know, you could count on him. This was a guy who uh, you hire him. Your job is getting finished in a timely fashion. No prima donna crap from that guy. But we're going to take a quick break right here. And we're going to be back at you with the conclusion of our podcast. More Rutger Howard to come, so stick around. All right, and we're back with break. Hey, thanks for sticking around. 
Hey, Rutger Power, Power, yeah, Rutger Howard, Power Hour continues. Yes, we can speak. <laughs> right along. Oh, we can speak. We don't do it well, uh, but like, you know, we, we have the power of speech. All kinds of tongue tied today. <laughs> I apologize. Anyhow. No worries, Mike. Yeah, yeah. So, the Hitcher Man and Blade Runner, two big standouts. But Hitcher, we'll... Blade Runner, Lady Hawk. Okay, these are three mega hits. Like, and that was the opening. Okay, <laughs> these were all within a few years of Nighthawks. Okay, this the guy went from 1981 showing up in one, you know, uh, mid-grade action flick, and then boom. Blade Runner, Lady Hawk, The Hitcher. Uh, three huge thumbprint movies. Uh, Wanted Dead or Alive. Yeah, was... Wanted Dead or Alive is a small mention. I just want to touch on this one. It's another good one if you haven't seen it. It's pretty good. He's basically reprising a role by Steve McQueen as a descendant of Nick Randall. Uh, the, the character, uh, Josh Randall, played by uh, Steve McQueen in the television series Wanted Dead or Alive of the same name. But uh, yeah, Bounty Hunter, former CIA operative, they 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 pluff it up for this one as was done often in the eighties. But he's there to track down a terrorist, Gene Simmons. Oh yeah, total terrorist. <laughs> Gene Simmons. I mean, we've talked about him in Runaway and a couple other films, where this guy is just a maniac. And you know, <sighs> well, he inflicted Detroit Rock City on all of us. Oh, I'm kidding! I I love Detroit Rock City. Sorry, man. We're Michigan people. We have to like it. It's like the law. Yeah, you can. You can stop by the state police. Do you like this? Yes. Okay. Oh, Faco and Better Made Chips, dude. I, you know, how can you hate these? These are wonderful things. But yeah, it's, uh, there's Lock a couple of Gene Simmons. We might end up in. We won't do a Gene Simmons power hour. I promise. No, that's. But we will talk about another Gene Simmons role that's way over. the. That guy is Gonzo. When they can't. Where they said, hey, we want you to do a crazy guy. He said, okay, hold my beer. Yeah, and just kick back and watch this. So, look, was this one of the great movies of all time? Uh, no, it was not. I mean, it's it's it was an homage to, like, an old Steve McQueen role, but it was fun. It was entertaining. Yeah, it's a good uh, Much watch. like Nighthawks, this is, like, if you're doing action movie night with the guys, okay, this was a, a winner of a staple. So, now... Yeah, the next one we come to is one of our personal favorites because it homages so much of Japanese cinema. It's Blind Fury. Now, I'm going to be absolutely candid in acknowledging that, you know, people do get upset when classics of Japanese cinema get, like, whitewashed into some Hollywood uh, recycled notion where the Seven Samurai gets turned into the Magnificent Seven and... Uh, Zatoichi, the Zatoichi series, which like literally ran from the 1960s all the way to 1989, uh, with uh, Shintaro Katsu as the titular Zatoichi. Oh yeah, the blind swordsman. Uh, these were historical dramas as movies and also briefly a television series in Japan, and they were beloved. Okay, they had an enormous impact on American directors and cinematographers, the, the people who really studied cinema, it's less of the exploitation that people think it is. 
it's very much an acknowledgement that this was like, oh my God, I want to do something like this. Even if it's not the same, even if we use a modern setting, uh, even if we set this in America. Uh, Zatoichi inspired so much love uh, and so much admiration of the concept that pretty much wherever you hear the the story of like a blind person who can fight insanely well, up to and including Daredevil, okay, uh, you know, whether it's in comics or otherwise, they're referencing Zatoichi, which like that was early 1960s Japan and what an impact it had. So like I, I may I, I may work out a way in which we can discuss Zatoichi at some other date. Because I just gonna be candid giant fan. So when Blind Fury came out in 1989, just in like that is literally the year that the Zatoichi franchise closed, that it came to its end until it was resuscitated by a later director. Uh, and they did one movie. Uh, I can't remember if it was Zatoichi. It was well, 2000 the, or 2001. Yeah, the screenplay was done by uh, uh, one of the screenwriters from the original Zatoichi series. Yeah. And yeah so, this was a loving homage. People get the impression that this was just like a quick rip. No, it was not. This, this, they did their homework. They got their chops down for this. And so. It's also a little bit of a comedy. This film suffers from only one flaw, that I think it doesn't know what it wants to be. Now, yeah. Zatoichi does have kind of a tongue-in-cheek moment here and there. His self-abasing, like, oh, I'm nobody, you know. <laughs> he's, a, he, he's very humble and gracious to anybody who shows him a little bit of kindness or does him a good turn. Very nice guy. Those who try to take advantage of him or cheat him... <laughs> find out there's a different side to this person who doesn't forget. Now, it, it depends, of course, if it's a, just a small slight or a little bit of this or that misserving him or thinking that they're taking your coins. Eh, you know, he lets that slide, doesn't immediately chop their heads off. But yeah, in this, they revamped a lot of things. Um, you know, it's a loosely based, modernized remake of Zatoichi Challenged, the 17th of the Zatoichi film series. Yeah. Uh, and, and it just closed out, as Mike said. They, they put this in a modern setting with, like, an American Vietnam veteran who is blind and, well, he's got a cane sword. Uh, and he knows how to wield it. Uh. <laughs> and of course, he walks to the movie mostly with sunglasses on, but he does take it off and does a pretty good job of portraying what full blindness is. And remember, this is a guy who... The intensity of his acting and the exact you, representation of your face, here's a guy who understood by watching the original material, by seeing the original Satoichi films, what he should be doing. That, you know, with his eyes largely closed, uh, this would change the way you have to make expressions, the, the way in which you would turn your head, the way you would represent listening carefully, uh, and the way in which you would show emotions. There were a lot of things in Blind Fury that showed that Rutger Howard did his homework, even if the people who built and scripted and directed this movie didn't quite know where they wanted to go with this. Mr. Howard did, and he did a marvelous job, kind of uh, tongue-in-cheek, uh, representing the 
Zatoichi type character. Yeah, and I think a lot of people uh, didn't know what to make of it because Zatoichi itself had that weird blend of comedy humor, although it's a lot more subtle than the Japanese versions. Yeah. This one combined it pretty well, but it did suffer a little bit that it didn't know what it wanted to do halfway through, and I think the script wanders, but that's a long-term view of it. Rutger Hauer is magnificent in the performance. He nails it perfectly, just like the actors for Zatoichi did. And more to the point, the plot is fairly solid, and it's a, it's a straightforward thing where a blind man driving becomes not only a moment of horrific <laughs> comedy, but one of gripping action. And I think that is also masterfully done with the director as well. And that leads us to one of the other favorite films that Rutger Hauer is known for. And, you know, this one is a little bit more, it's the blood of heroes. And this is one where he takes on a role of a mentor in this one. Where in the other one, yeah, he helps a little kid find, uh, you know, his murdered father. And now is... Uh, in the grips of a, uh, the sites of a crime syndicate. This one, he takes on the full front role of a of a, a true mentor teaching others in the way of the jugger and blood of heroes. So it's an Australian <clears throat> American post-apocalyptic movie. So yeah. could, I've often heard that, could these two Phil, could this be in the same genre as Mad Max? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs> Look, it was obviously a genre that worked out well. Okay, Mad Max was enormously popular years before, and you know that was a thing. That 1980s, uh, it had its share of post-apocalyptic, uh, you know, warriors of the wastelands. Not an uncommon thing, but here, you know, Mr. Howard once again, whatever the genre is, <laughs> what have you got? He can show up and represent. Okay. Yeah, this one gets kind of poo-pooed as a little bit of one of his lesser roles. I think he really shows a lot of depth of character in this one. Of course, the role is written for him. But in this case, he's a he's a gladiatorial combatant in the sport, which is, they're called Jugs and uh, Juggers. And uh, they have an organization known as the League, and they go from city to city, and they're going to the big game. And if you can hear refrains of, a small sports team making it good? Yeah, here it is. But this is in a post-apocalyptic world as they go to the dog towns. And he begins to teach his team how to not only exploit the sport and make the best team that he can get, but also what the sport is about. They need to fight not just for survival, but for the enjoyment of the crowd. Just being too efficient. Isn't it? You have to get the bloodlust. Oh, yeah, you've got to be an entertainer. Yeah. Okay. There's there's a little tug and cheek comment there. It's like it's not enough to win. You you have to look good while you do it. You got to please the the watchers. Uh, now, this was not a movie that I saw at the time of production either. You know, this much like uh, Flesh and Blood, this was one that went under my radar until years later. Uh, and I caught up later and went, ah, well, you know, it's Rutger Hauer. How bad can it be? And I watched it and went, oh, man, all right, that was a good time. Yeah. I don't know why I was so, you know, concerned. Well, it's <laughs> easy to dismiss because it looks like so many, so many of the films coming out at that time were almost straight to video. And this was one that had a theater, theatrical release, but it just didn't do well. Yeah, there's so much stuff now that is straight to streaming uh, and... You know, it's analogous to the situation circa 30 years ago, 
where, hey, there was a market for, you know, like all you got to do is get a few copies of these into every video store in the country. You know, maybe the print run on this VHS tape is going to be, you know, uh, you're only going to make 100,000 of them in a country with 300 million people. Uh, but you're guaranteed that at least they're going to go to the video store. And then the weird things would happen where at the video store yeah people would tell their friends and tell their friends dude you have to come over i'm renting this movie again like this is the third time i've rented this and it gets better every time i see it uh, and like watch parties would happen <laughs> yeah so if, yeah blood of heroes man i mean it it's an underrated one but it's one that if your if your expectations are low it's going to hit you hard so we're going to move on to the next one and these two uh film credits uh, one is just a small bit, but it's pretty powerful. So I'll let Mike talk about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> uh, he had a smaller role in the original movie, Buffy the Vampire yeah. Slayer, which uh, at its initial release, uh, his the principal antagonist opposite uh, Christy Swanson and Donald Sutherland, the antagonist was Rutger Hauer as the vampire Lothos. And he only has a few scenes, and he's wonderful in all of them. He's very, like, he understood that this is a, a movie that has a little whiff of camp, mm -hmm. a, a whimsy to it, yeah. that is intended to be lighthearted. And yes, there's darkness, but, you know, even as you're being evil, you also have to, you know, be funny uh, without being ridiculous. And he nailed it, okay? Lothos had a wonderful sense of, you know, irritation with his cohort, uh, with Paul Rubens. Yeah, well, of course. <laughs> Who wouldn't? Uh, but he was a pleasure to watch. Uh, and the success of that movie as a quirky, entertaining film, where all of a sudden, out of nowhere, here's like the, the antithetical, like the traditional vampire hunter thing gets turned on its head. Is it Van Helsing, a you know, determined doctor battling against evil? No. No. Uh, it's a teenage girl who is like effectively almost a valley girl. Her principal interest is shopping. And that's the inheritor of the magical destiny that is supposed to empower her to fight for the slayer. Yeah. Yeah. And poor Donald Sutherland is there to, I'm supposed to teach you in accordance with these, you know, longstanding traditions, but it's obvious that this is going to be a little more challenging than I expected. Uh, <laughs> no, that, that made an impression too. And it's, when you consider that the origin, the success of the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer led to the viability of the revamped television series. So, hey, thanks a bunch, Rutger. Uh, you yeah, know, you were part of the infancy of something that went on to be a very large scale. Yeah, you know, I played. I say it's a minor role because he ended up playing the the villain. Sure, but you know, he <laughs> but he, he played it with style. Yeah, he was almost a scene stealer, but it was a, his appearances were a little too brief for my life. Now. We're going to go to the other one. This is my favorite Rutger Hour movie outside of Blade Runner is Split Second. Oh. And Split Second is one of those movies that, yeah, suffers from... There's a lot going on, and you could definitely tell 
maybe in a second or third viewing that there were, was some problems with editorial and directorial uh, backstage. But Rucker Howard carries it out. Uh, it is basically a near-future, post-environmentalistic uh, cataclysm. It, it's not quite here yet, but it's coming. Uh, a submerged London is beset by a serial killer who performs bizarre rituals in underground places and Rutger Hauer is the maniac cop who is over sugared, over caffeinated and over Nick and constantly smoking <laughs> because he's one of the survivors <laughs> and everybody is linked to it. And he find out it's a supernatural creature or an alien or something. We never really 100% find it out, but yes, it's stalking. It eventually stalks all the titular characters. And of course his co-star is at first perplexed why he's teamed with the psychopath <laughs> and Rutger Howard completely flips the script halfway through and becomes the dominant factor on the screen just basically owning every scene when with this creature that is sparingly used in good cinematic cinematographic shots because you never get to see it all at once but every oh. scene you see a little bit more and it's a little bit longer it's a nice little trick and yeah it's for people who are wise to it it seems cheap but I say it was hey Again, remembering that at that time, it was extremely difficult without CGI, okay? There yes. were special effects, but CGI had not reached like out into the cinematic world and transformed it yet. So, subtlety was the order of the day. And the greatest admiration was given to those who undertook that subtle approach and then made the most of the least. If you created the greatest impression with the least amount of like really blunt obvious footage then you had accomplished something cinematographically or cinematographically that others admired and split second is such a case it was well done in that respect in that respect there are some other areas where they dropped the ball it could have been better than it was. right but i think it it, it turned out well uh, the post editing really um ironed out those kinks because you know as he is described he plays the cynical homicide detective who according to his commanding officer survives on anxiety coffee and chocolate for being unable to prevent the death of his cohort killed three years ago and he is obsessed with it and they send a psychologist to try to analyze the serial killer and he becomes it starts to empathize with him and as, especially after seeing the creature then begins to start drinking coffee smoking <laughs> cigarettes and eating a vast amounts of sugar and chocolate oh i understand now yes yeah it totally makes sense and he figures out the psychologist figures out of course that the creature is taunting him. it's not just hunting him it's taunting him making living off of his yeah, the, psychological trauma, reliving it constantly. Yeah, the, this is personal. Yeah. <laughs> now, this is, we're drawing close to the. Yeah, it's also the, I should say in the far off future of two thousand and eight. So <laughs> at the time it was made. <laughs> I'm sorry. Continue. <laughs> uh, now we're drawing close to the the close of the actual show itself here. You know, uh, for ourselves. So, we're gonna flash forward. Uh, you know, in reference uh, that he was involved in a lot of American productions, the 1980s and the 1990s. Uh, and frankly, there was a gap period where he also really just devoted himself to working a lot 
in Holland. Uh, and, mm -hmm. You know, when the film industry took off in Europe uh, to a much greater degree, uh, it enabled him, you know, instead of getting like a movie here, there, overseas, you know, he, he went into film and television in Holland and had a, a abundant work life. The guy was everywhere. However, there's one particular movie we got to focus on before we come to our clothes, uh -oh. which is like Rutger Hauer coming out of retirement in terms of American cinema. Okay. He really, he, he really made a splash that was enormous. It's not like he didn't appear in other movies. Okay. You, you will find him scattered throughout uh, in things like Sin City uh, or Batman Begins. Batman Begins, yeah. But Hobo with a Shotgun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hobo with a Shotgun. Yeah, that started out as just a, a visionette of trailers that were meant to basically <laughs> evoke the old grindhouse ideas. And people were so enthralled with Rutger Hauer standing there looking into the maternity ward, looking at all the babies and all their potential. He could grow up to be a doctor. A lawyer, a politician, or might I wind up like me? Hobo with a shotgun. <laughs> uh, now, that was like the the most recent major memorable moment. But there is one other thing we absolutely had to get in to this discussion, and that was the televised show. Uh, you know, kind of a television movie, Fatherland, where. Yep. He it was the a, SS Sturmfuhrer Xavier Mark. Uh, the to give the fastest possible synopsis, it is a what if movie about post World War II. What if, flash forward twenty years after like nineteen forty four, uh, what if the Nazis had not lost but had instead come to the peace table and like yeah, secured their gains and then stopped right where they were? Said, okay, that's our new borders going to play nice and we'll all have peace and what if uh, they then prospered as a you know 1960s major uh, you know political and economic power uh, still under the rule of Hitler who had yeah not, but know, a, a cold war existed between the United States yeah and Nazi Germany but instead of the United this was States not a and the friendly you know, oh, it was a tense Okay, this was you know, like imagine Germany as the Cold War power that we were principally opposed to. And here's a guy who is an honest police detective. A, you know, he's a, yeah, even though in the guise of the SS, he is con, he is a consummate detective and an upholder of law and order. Complete professional. The truth means more to him. And he is confronted with the horror of uncovering the Holocaust that they have dismissed as propaganda by the Allies, that it never happened, and now a series of murders clues him in that they're closing the books on this in Nazi Germany once and for all by killing all of the remaining witnesses yeah. and participants. And that pulls in, oh, to the great misfortune of this fellow, yeah. it pulls in the honest detective who is effectively an incorruptible, you know, he is just the truth matters is, to him he is dogged and relentless and he continues to subtly poke and prod and follow every lead as this unravels around him destroying his career and reputation and personal safety <laughs> and his family it is wonderful as a movie and when you consider that this was a made for television movie 
it is doubly pleasurable because yeah. you didn't really honestly throughout the late 80s early 90s made for tv movies you know were never really anything that i thought of as like great works of art fatherland is one of the few exceptions and a big part of that i gotta hand it to mr hour yeah and also the metal hurlant chronicles where he played kern in the episode pledge of anya is also worth worth looking up oh the tenth kingdom the uh yep. like a, it was the a, huntsman yep the series uh in science or uh, sorry a fantasy fiction setting uh that one of those things where it interconnects with the modern world so to speak and john larroquette was also in that but yeah i uh, there's there's just too much yeah and you know and also his um his charitable work and his later part of his life uh, oh his, yeah let's talk uh Let's close this with uh, Rutger Howard, the guy. Uh, like, yeah, we can talk about the actor and all the great roles that he's had, but also a very private individual who was really popular in Dutch, in Holland, and he was important in Dutch cinema and media. Yeah, he was, was enormously like, influential. Uh, you know, he in his very late in his career, he was spending a lot of time as a mentor uh, to young younger actors, uh, teaching master classes. Uh, he was quite the equestrian and supporter of the Frisian breed of uh, horses, mm -hmm. which, you know, he was bequeathed one as a gift because of the popularity Lady Hawk brought when yeah. he rode a Frisian. Uh, and they are beautiful horses. Uh, mm -hmm. as, as a semi-equestrian myself, you know. Oh, some, they are beautiful horses. Yeah, they are magnificent. Uh, also, he had created... I, I believe because in Holland, uh, you know, in the acting community, he had lost a few friends in the 1980s. Uh, but he used his success to create an AIDS education outlet. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, that uh, remains to this day, I believe. Uh, although, you know, think the situation has obviously improved since the nightmarish uh, well, era of yeah. the 1980s. But, you know, still a wonderful thing to do. No. Uh, it tells you something about a person that like they they have the money to do things and they actually do them uh, absolutely <laughs> but no a remarkable fellow and he leaves uh, it behind a wide legacy of film and work some of his schlock yeah a lot of his director video stuff can be looked at as oh hey he was just you know phoning it in uh, oh i don't think he was there was a few roles that maybe you could look at and he took some chances with nostradamus and a couple other promised roles here and there that uh, he was in, um, oh, geez. Uh, well, we talked about the Tenth Kingdom, but there was another one, Anglo-Saxon. I can't recall it off the top of my head, but he was Raven, the Saxon warlord in that one. Oh. Well, that was quite good. Uh, oh, man. I think I know what the one you're talking about, but yeah. He was a very humble guy in real life. Uh, he didn't even have that high of opinion of actors per se and of the popularity of them. He had a kind of slightly jaded view that uh you know i mean a good movie can happen in spite of a bad actor a terrible movie can happen in, happen in spite of a good actor but people seem to like you know the the importance of an actor is in terms of like the the branding and the marketing and things yeah. like that uh and so the only thing that really mattered to him was craft you know like you just really you you know make that make what you are playing come alive and be content with that you yeah know, nobody's just, a star because they're a genius you know you 
just like Jack Palance. And that's, you know, that's the best legacy you can leave behind is that, and that's what we were alluding, I was alluding to at least all the way through, probably Mike was as well. It wasn't, he was in these bad films or he seemed to, he seemed to bring this role alive. It's because he came there to do the best he could and the rest is up to the director and the crew to film and produce and get it out. Yeah, an actor is just one part in that machine, you know. Yeah, he's he's not, he's good, He but he had a self-appation that I think is, well, it's always good to see. Yeah, like, admirable, yeah. you know. Uh, it's admirable. Uh, having just enough good sense to go, ah, well, look, you know, look, I'm not as important as you think I am, okay? I, you know, a lot of, lot of other stuff went into making this a good movie. Uh, I showed up and did my job right, that was it. Which, honestly, let's go back to Harrison Ford for a second and say, you know, that's a little bit of Harrison Ford's attitude, too. Which is, you know... I don't know, he seems to be kind of mean-spirited about it. Like, he's like, oh, this was terrible. (laughs) Yeah, well... (laughs) Look, you owned it. Just... Just walk away proud that you did a work that people appreciated and liked you for. Yeah, it brought a lot of entertainment into the world. And that is why we miss Mr. Rutger Hauer. That is why this episode was a love letter to a guy who spread out across uh, three decades, had this outsized impact on our particular favorite genres. And he showed up in all of them. That's right. So with that, we're going to wrap it up and bid you adieu. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. And of course, you can always get a hold of us on our Facebook page, uh, The Dice of Screaming on Facebook. And of course, you can leave us a message there and you can download the app, Crap and get our favorite favorite us and get our episodes and notifications when we put them out. But we must go. So till later, may, may the, the dice, dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya.